Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. Psalm 22. And I want you to think about this. I want you to think about even one of the prayer requests that we just shared. When's the time in life when you felt like you had a very big, a very important prayer, you're praying about something very significant, and it seems like God is just not answering you, right? And we know the little sweet, well, God's always saying yes, no, maybe so, but it's like, you know, I'm asking for something very specific, and He's not giving me the very specific thing that I want Him to give me, and not only that, that I think He should be giving me, right? Again, I'm not asking for something superfluous. I feel like I'm asking for something that would very much line up with His heart, and he's not doing it. And we're going to look at an instant of that this morning. There is rhyme and reason for the order that the Psalms are put into the book of Psalms, although we can't always discern it, but sometimes we can. And we've seen that even in the two we've looked at so far, right? Chapter 20 was a prayer before battle, very specific. Chapter 21 was after the battle, praising for all the specific answers. And then chapter 22 comes right after it in a sense to say, but what do you do when you're praying for something very specific and essentially God's saying no? Or he's just not saying anything. He's just ignoring you, seemingly. So we're going to look at how David feels as he moves through this psalm. And John Calvin said this, and I think he's right, that probably what David is doing here, because as you read it, as you're paying attention, you're like, if you've read the historical books about David, I can't remember one exact instance in David's life that seems like it exactly resembles this. And Calvin says probably what David is doing is on the back end of all his sufferings with Saul, he's writing this metaphorically about how he feels during the worst of the worst of those times when he's on the run from King Saul. Okay, So it's going to start with the feeling of forsakenness. He feels forsaken by God. So let's start Psalm 22 verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. So he's praying. He's praying for something specific, and he feels like the heavens are brass. He feels like God's door is closed. Have you ever read A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis? And he talks about just the loneliness of when you're hurting and you're crying out. You want the nearness of God's presence. We've talked about how important that is the past two weeks. But it's like God's withholding it. There's no sense of his nearness. There's no sense of his presence in your life. And let me just mention this. There, there was a band, and, and they sang a song. This has been years ago, and I won't mention it because I don't think any of you would have heard of it. Uh, but they were, they were atheists, and they basically were saying, we grew up Catholic, and now we don't believe in God. But part of what they were saying is, but, so when you die, nothing's going to happen. But the song was the man writing to his girlfriend saying, basically, when you get ready to die, don't worry because nothing's going to happen. But if you're, if you're scared, I'll go with you. I'll die with you. And it was just interesting because it's like in one sense you're saying it's no big deal, there's nothing out there. But in another sense you're saying, but if you're terrified to die, I know you don't want to be alone, I'll go with you. Even atheists know when suffering comes, we don't want to be alone. We want somebody with us in our pain. And that's, that's one of the most acute types of suffering is when we really feel like we have been left all alone, abandoned by our loved ones and abandoned even by God. And even if you intellectually know it's true, right? You know all the right answers. You could pass the catechism test. But when you feel forsaken, it's painful. And that's what David was going through. 
Have you ever been in a situation where you're praying, and maybe the more you pray, sometimes it's like, things are getting worse. The more, you remember the old, okay, I will mention this one. Everybody's seen It's a Wonderful Life, right? And George Bailey in the bar, he's praying, God, I'm not much of a praying man, but if you're up there, I need help. And the next thing you know, he gets punched in the mouth. And he's like, that's the answer to my prayer. Sometimes we feel that way. Like I'm praying, and things are getting worse. Verse 2. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. So notice, this is not a casual whim. This is not just a, hey, God, it'd be nice if my uh, tax return came back early this year. This is a desperate, clinging, wrestling prayer, repetitive prayer, persevering in prayer. Verse 3, yet you are holy. On you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. So he's saying, I know you're, I know you're good. I know you're right. I know you're wise. I always know that you do the right thing. But this doesn't seem to line up, God. I am praying. I'm walking with you. And this is interesting. So many of the Psalms, at some point there will be mention of sin. At some point there will be a confession of sin. At some point there will be some kind of repentance or admittance. I'm not perfect. You don't get that in this Psalm. Now, why is that? Likely there's more than one reason, but at least one. It doesn't mean that David thought he was sinlessly perfect. But it was a time where he's basically saying, as best I know, I'm walking closely with you. I'm praising you. You ought to be near. And guys, I have found this to be true in my life, and I've found it to be true in a lot of other people's lives. And I may have mentioned it in here before. There is such thing as a soft evangelical prosperity gospel. And here's the logic of it. We never say it out loud, but we feel it. If I do good, I deserve good. If I did good, I ought to get good from God. I can't remember if I shared this story, but I'll I'll share it again because it was very revealing of my own heart. Earlier in this year, I had to have some work done on a tooth. And every time I went to the dentist to get it fixed, right? And what I want, I just want the pain to go away. That's what I want. I want it to quit hurting. I'd go and I'd leave and it would hurt even worse. You ever had a situation like that? And I was getting angry. It was more than just frustration. It was anger. I mean, to the point that I literally almost had to sit down, rebuke the dentist. Like, you're abusing me type thing. And as I was in a men's group and, and talking, I was confessing. Like, I really, you know, I had really struggled with anger, I think. And my buddy, he just asked me, he said, why, why have you been so angry about your tooth? And it's one of those times he asked me, and I instantly knew the answer, but I didn't want to share it because it's so convicting. I said, as I look into my heart, here's the reason. Because I'm entitled. Because deep in the basement of my heart, even though I know this is not true, I preach against this kind of stuff. But what I feel in my heart is, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm living a pretty good life. I'm not asking to be rich. I just don't want my tooth to hurt. Is that too much to ask? And I'm not getting it, and I'm mad about it. I'm telling you, dig down deep enough, and that's a wrestle for most of us. Listen, sometimes God brings pain in life as punishment on wicked people, non-believers. We talked about that last week, right? Sometimes God brings pain in life as discipline and chastisement on God's own people, right? We've, we've seen that in the Scriptures. But sometimes God brings pain in life for deeper, bigger, better reasons that we can't discern at first, right? You remember John 9, the disciples? Why is this man blind? His sin, parents' sin? Jesus, neither for the glory of God be displayed. Don't be too quick to judge providence in your own life or somebody else's life. We can't always read and interpret exactly what God's doing. 
Look at verse 4 and 5. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not dismayed. So what's he doing there? Remember, remember what we've talked about. It's good to preach your own history yourself. Preach the truth. Meditate. Remind. But sometimes even that can be like salt in the wound, can it not? It's like, hey God, I remember all these stories of like my dad and my granddad and they prayed for specific things and you answered them. And now here I am praying and you're not answering me. But even think about that illustration, salt in the wound. Sometimes salt can be painful in a wound, but it can have a healing preservative effect. He keeps going. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. A worm is small, a worm is gross, a worm is insignificant. I was talking to a gentleman today, said he hit a deer with his car, right? Totaled his car. The other night, I hit a little bunny rabbit with my car, you know? Told my daughter, made her sad. If anybody hits a worm with your car, you won't notice, you won't care because it's small and insignificant. You ever felt that way in life? I have. When I have had seasons where I feel like I am working my hardest, doing my best to try to be faithful in ministry ventures and there seems to be no fruit. It's like I go to bed sometimes and I say, God, I want to stick in this thing. I want to be faithful, but I feel small. I feel insignificant. Nobody wants to feel that way. Now, we hate it when others, I mean, it's bad enough when you just feel like God's abandoned me, but when other people start to pile on, that almost makes it worse, does it not? Look at verse 7. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And this would have almost certainly been some of the words that David's, I mean, excuse me, Saul's henchmen would say to David. You're the little shepherd boy. You think you're going to be king one day because God chose you? Because the prophet, you're a nothing. You're a nobody. You're going to die. Nothing's big is going on with you. They're mocking him. <clears throat> Listen to John Calvin. With this inward conflict, the godly must necessarily be exercised whenever God withdraws from them the tokens of his favor, so that in whatever direction they turn their eyes, they see nothing but the darkness of night. Between these two contrary affections, the faithful are agitated, and as it were, they fluctuate. When Satan, on the one hand, by exhibiting to their view the signs of the wrath, urges on to them despair and endeavors entirely to overthrow their faith, while faith, on the other hand, by calling them back to the promises, teaches them to wait patiently and to trust God until he again shows them his fatherly countenance. You hear what he's saying there? When you're in seasons, when I'm in seasons, when I feel like I'm praying for something and God's not answering, Satan is going to find a way to whisper into your mind, God doesn't love you anymore. Maybe he loves you, but he doesn't like you. He's not going to help you this time. You sinned too big last time. You're done for. And it's going to be an internal battle of faith to trust what I know to be true about God, even when all the circumstances seem to be screaming at me something different. And a lot of times, the way that Satan will speak to us is through the words of people that are actually close to us. You remember, you remember one of the ways that Satan tried to speak to Job? was through his wife in a moment of despair. Curse God and die. 
You remember one of the ways that Satan tried to speak to Jesus? Through his best buddy, Peter. Don't go to the cross. Whatever you do, don't go to the cross. Verse 9 and 10. Yet you were he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. So he's saying, God, you were helping me and doing good stuff to me when I was an infant, like I was a newborn. You were taking care of me when I wasn't mature enough to even ask. And now here I am in my maturity asking, and you ignore me. I don't get it. I don't like it. I don't understand it. I had a season I was going through in my life recently, and here was the prayer that I would find myself praying at night. I don't get you, God. But then I would say, but I trust you. I don't get you. I don't like the way you're handling this situation right now. You, you don't say this one out loud very often, but I thought it. If I was in charge, I would not handle things this way. But then just, not my will but thine. You're smarter, you're bigger, you're better. I trust you. Although it's, Listen, it's a fight of faith. And that's really where David's going to move next. Okay? You really see the first few verses, David is saying, I feel forsaken, I feel forgotten, I feel abandoned. And, but, but, he, but there's this fight of faith that he's trying to wrestle it out. One minute fear, one minute faith. So let's keep going, verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. So thus far, he's asked why. It's like, where are you? Why are you doing this? But he hasn't asked for anything specific. Now he starts to pray for something very specific. He's like, God, I want your presence. If I've got to suffer... Right? I mean, David is mature enough to realize sometimes on planet Earth, even the most godly people are going to suffer. But God, if i got to go through suffering, don't make me do it alone. My daughter, when she was young, this was elementary school, she got some kind of infection in her leg, foot, ankle, and they couldn't figure it out. And she ended up having to spend about a, a week down at UAB. And it was like a team of doctors working on her. I mean, praise God for modern medicine and UAB being in our backyard, right? But they had a team of doctors poking and prodding and trying to figure out what is this effect infection we can't figure it out and she for a little girl did amazing right but she really had one main request is like mom cannot leave my presence like mom was in the hospital room almost every moment with Sophia and I would try to be husband of the year and come in and be like hey baby would you let mom have like one night go home sleep with she's like no Dad, you know she's like you can stay too but mom's got to be here even the point like when Lena would want to have to take a shower or go to the bathroom. Sophia would be like, leave the bathroom door open, Mom. And she's like, baby, you know, it's a hospital. People just kind of barge in. That, that's weird. But there was a sense Sophia was strong. I don't know that she ever cried through the whole thing. But she was like, hey, Mom, you can't leave me. And that's the way we feel a lot of times in our suffering, right? Like, hey, God, if you're going to make me go through this, okay. But I need you walking through it with me hand in hand. But David feels abandoned. Verse 12. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shred. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, what's he doing here? He's talking metaphorically about his suffering. 
I mean, have you ever been, maybe been really sick or maybe you had a terrible night's sleep or something, and the next day you say, you know what, I feel like somebody beat me up. I feel like I was in a fist fight. I feel like I got run over by a Mack truck. You don't literally mean an 18-wheeler ran over you. But it's like, that's what I feel like. And he's saying, Bashan was known for very large cattle, large bulls. He's like, these people, these oppressors, Saul's henchmen that are coming after me, I feel like they're bulls and they're just trampling me down. They're like dogs. They're talking dirty. They're chasing me. They never give up. I'm from one cave to another. They're snapping at my heels. I can't get away from them. And literally, it's like they're clawing at me and they're ripping into my hands and into my feet. They're tearing me apart with their words. And I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty. I'm sick of being on the run. He's venting. <clears throat> I do think there's an appropriate time and way to vent to another human being. I think you have to be very careful in venting to another human being, right? Because they might take everything you say too literally. Or you might draw them into your sin and despair, right? You ever vented to your spouse about something? Let me just vent to you about this situation at work. And the next thing you know, your spouse is mad at the people at work. Like, baby, I don't need you mad at them, okay? It's like, I'm probably in sinful anger. I don't want you to get in sinful anger with me. i got to repent of this one day. So you got to be careful venting to another human Venting to God, he can handle it. He can handle it. And he already knows all the struggles that are buried in our hearts. And one of the most important things to do in prayer is to open it up and let it out. Roll those burdens onto the Lord. Okay. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. It's like I'm dying. I'm gaunt. I'm losing weight. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, what's going on here? Again, there's no situation in David's life that identifies this, but probably what he's saying is, they're talking about me like I'm as good as dead, like it's already over. All these assassins that are coming out of me, it's like they're saying, hey, once we get him, who gets to keep his clothes? They're talking about me like I'm already dead. They're disrespecting me. They, they are confident of the victory. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. So he's praying, but you see it's a fight of faith. God, I feel like I'm about to die, but I'm, I'm hanging on, I'm clinging, I'm fighting. He's persevering, but there's about to be a breakthrough. Okay? He's felt forsaken. He's felt the fight. And now he's going to start to feel favor. Look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. See what he's doing there? This is his confidence. This is like, hey, God, I feel like I'm about to die. I feel like these guys are about to catch me and chop my head off. But I'm hanging on by just a thread of faith. But he's like, you know what? I know one day I'm going to come through. I know that one day I'm going to be back in the tabernacle praising you with the other true believers. Just like we don't like to suffer alone, we don't like to praise alone for long, do we? I mean, when you're really praising the Lord, I mean, think about whoever your favorite team is. The last time they won a really big game, hey, don't get too distracted. I know I could lose y'all even bringing up this illustration, right? But the last time your team lost, almost lost a really big game, came from behind, big victory, did you just want to stand in the den by yourself and cheer? 
You want to call somebody, right? You want to hug somebody. You want to, you, you want to, if you use social media, get on social media and mock the other team. But you want to do something to publicly celebrate, to publicly praise. And that's what he's doing here, okay? Look at verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All your descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. When we experience answered prayer, when we experience victory, there ought to be a sense that we turn and we call others to praise God with us. Don't keep it to yourself. Boast in the Lord publicly and call upon other people to do it. I think I shared this with you last week. I was talking about the importance of praise and a big prayer that had been clearly answered in one of my son's life, and it hit me. I never stopped and praised God for this personally and at all, personally or publicly. And you know what the first thing I want to do is? I turned to my wife. I said, we, we need to praise together. We prayed for this together. We need to praise God, not just me alone. And that ought to just be the norm of Christian life. What, what if we did that? I mean, what if we shared our victories more so there could be more public praise? Okay? God is real. God is good. He is listening. I mean, doesn't it do you good? I mean, imagine if you had something like this, a place where you feel heavy, you feel like things are hard, you feel forsaken, you feel like nobody's answering, and then you show up and one of your best friends says, you know what, I was in that situation just like you're talking about. In fact, I was in that situation for years, and just last week, God answered my prayer. What would that do for your heart? It's like this little reminder. Oh, yeah, I know he's real. I know he's real. I know he's going to hear. I know he's going to answer. Look at verse 24. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. You see how this is very different than verse 1? There's been a breakthrough. He felt forsaken, and now he's like, no, no, no. You persevere in prayer, eventually God will hear. He doesn't look down on you for your hardship. Eventually he will hear, he will care. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. When I first read verse 25, as I was studying this past week, it's like, from you comes my praise. Like, what does that mean? God praises me? No, right? What it means is, even my ability to praise God... God gives me the ability to praise Him. God's the one that keeps me alive. God's the one that gives me breath. God's the one that gives me joy. So even when I'm praising God, it's like, God, I thank you even for the ability to praise you. I thank you for even the know-how, the desire, the faithfulness to praise you. Anything good and right in me, it's ultimately a gift. I can't claim it. Verse 26, the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. So, I mean, this is just overflowing joy. We're going to live. We're going to reign. We're going to celebrate. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. Now he's going global. And you see this happen a lot in the Psalms, and you see it happen a lot in the Bible. I mean, this is the thrust of the Bible. God starts small. He works with one person, one family, one nation. And it's like, no, no, but I want to get all the nations. And guys, one of God's appointed means to get the gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation is suffering. Have you ever, John Piper has a great book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And three of the chapters are about kind of the means of missions. How are we going to get the gospel to all nations? Prayer, worship, and suffering. Think about 
Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, the other men that went down to Ecuador to reach the unreached tribe of Indians, their tragic death, but how much that compelled world missions for the next 50 years because of what those men were willing to do and what their wives were willing to do. Elizabeth Elliott, after it was over, went back and lived with the men that killed her husband and led many of them to Christ. And a lot of people, I'm still inspired by that story. Suffering is one of God's appointed ways to move his mission forward. That ought to be a helpful thought to us, guys. God doesn't let us suffer arbitrarily. It feels arbitrary, doesn't it? I mean, how many times have you had a conversation with somebody and they're like, I know, I know, God's sovereign, Romans 8, 28, blah, 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 but I can't see how God would bring any good out of this suffering that I'm in. You ever heard somebody say that? Ever said it personally? It just takes a little time and perspective. It's like, oh yeah, oh yeah. God is the master at turning triumphs into tragedies. Excuse me, tragedies into triumphs. It's like his calling card. So if you're one of his people and you're going through tragedy, it's just a matter of time before the triumph comes. And that's part of what ought to keep our spirits high even in the worst of suffering. Verse 28, For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Listen, he's going to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and he's going to save people from every station in life, the rich, the poor, the highborn, and the broken. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. God's going to fulfill all his good plans, and when we're all in heaven together, we're going to look back, and we're not going to say like, ah, okay, it worked out okay, God. You know, we're going to say, beautiful, magnificent. Couldn't have been a better way. It was so painful. It was so hard. It was so long, and now we see it was best. Now, let's think about application for just a second. Have you ever been in a situation where it feels like God has put you in a situation and you desperately want to move the ball forward, so to speak, but there's nothing you can do to change the circumstance. You just have to sit and wait and suffer. I had to go take two of my family members to the cell phone store yesterday because their phones were dying. I hate going to the cell phone store. I feel like it's a trap. I feel like I'm getting manipulated the whole time I'm there. And then even if I feel like I'm getting a halfway decent deal, then they're like, well, we got to program it and we got to scratch this phone, blah, 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 and pair everything. And I, why, part of why I hate it, I hate wasting my time. And there's about an hour where I'm just sitting, there's nothing I can do. There's no way that I can move this. Pro- I'm just stuck in this store with this stupid playlist over and over again and nothing I can do. Now, that's kind of a small, funny example. Gal was discipling, graduated, got a job. Move to the new city, starts the new job. Job's not taken off quite the way he wanted to be taken off. So I was catching up with him the other day, and he's like, you want me to be honest with you? Yes. And he was venting with me. Okay? Hopefully I was a safe place to vent. He's like, I haven't been happy since I moved here. I didn't want to move to this city. I don't have any friends in this. And listen, he's like, I don't feel like this city is helping me walk with God. I'm trying to be serious about walking with my faith, but I don't like It's just going off. I'm not getting paid as much as I thought I was going to get paid. 
The job is not going the way I thought it was going to go, but I just signed a year lease. There's nothing I can do about it. Now, I didn't speak in too strong then because I could tell he is not in the mood to hear truth, right? <laughs> this, is, this is a venting session. I need to listen and love and pray. But what I have realized in my life and in ministering a lot of people is God likes to put us in positions where all we can do is just sit and suffer and wait. And we're desperately like, what can I do to change the situation? It's like, nothing. I mean, there's sinful things you could try, but what righteous thing can you do to change the situation? Nothing. You can sit and suffer and wait. And those are some of the hardest times, right? Because we feel utterly out of control. And we don't like that. So what do we do when we're in a situation like that? We vent to God. right? Remember verse 2. You persevere in prayer, repetitive prayer, day and night. You're just pouring out your heart to God. Verse 8, where it says, commit your way to the Lord. Literally, it's I roll the anxieties, the worries, the fears, the doubts, whatever, off of my back onto His back. I roll them off of my soul onto His soul. And then 26, look at this again. Those, the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. The word there for seek, the idea there is of a very deliberate all-out seeking. It's not a going through the motions. Well, I went to church. What more do you want from me? It's like a desperate, clinging, all-out, help me, God. So, David is a great example of how to do this. But there's one better, right? This psalm, more than any other, shows us that David was a prophet and that the psalms ultimately aren't really about David and they're not ultimately about us. They're about the Lord Jesus Christ. How is the Lord Jesus Christ such a great, empathetic high priest for us? Because he has joined us in our suffering. He was literally nailed to a cross and he could not move. He could not advance the ball forward. There was nothing he could do to speed it up. And he felt fully forsaken. You want to talk about somebody that knew all the right answers? Right? Could have been the best Presbyterian of all time. But he didn't feel those answers in his heart. He felt forsaken. He felt abandoned. He felt left out. Okay. Now, Derek Kidner said, it's not a lapse of faith nor broken relationship, but it's a cry of disorientation as God's familiar, protective presence is withdrawn. God the Father and God the Son have been perfectly one and intimate eternally forever. And then his experience of that is stripped away. We, we can't begin to fathom the pain that that must have brought. The excruciating physical pain of the cross was nothing compared to the spiritual torture that he went through. When I was having some of my... It finally got to a root canal. That's where it finally got. All right? We're going to numb you up. We're going to do the work. You shouldn't feel a thing. Right, thanks. I'm feeling stuff, right? But I got multiple things going through my mind, right? I'm a tough guy, right? I don't want to make a fool of myself, Maybe the painkiller is going to kick in soon. Probably it'll be over soon. And then it's like, they just touched the nerve. And it's like, ah! Right? You can have multiple thoughts going through your mind, but every once in a while the pain gets so bad, 
there's only one thought, right? Who's your dentist? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The guy, yeah, I, I won't say. <laughs> yeah, he said, are you still feeling that? i like, yeah. Okay, sorry, I need to give you some more stuff. But here's my point. Even Christ on the cross and all he knew, I think in his human faculties there were times where he was just overwhelmed with the thought, Dad abandoned me. And it's like he's drowning in it. You see, I don't think Jesus knew how long has this got to last. How long have I got to be up here drinking hell for these people? Calvin. The perfect purity of his nature did not extinguish the human affections. It only regulated them that they might not become sinful through excess. You know what he's saying? Everything you've ever felt, Jesus felt just without sin. To whatever degree you can be despairing and yet not get into sinful despair, Jesus went there. But isn't it interesting, guys, that when he's crying out, my God, my God, forsaken me, it's not just an emotional cry. He's quoting the Psalms. He's meditating on Scripture, literally, while he's in hell. And he happened to choose a psalm that starts in tragedy and forsakenness, but it ends in triumph and favor. He knew where it was going to end. As much as it was a cry of dereliction and abandonment, it was also a cry of triumph and perseverance, and I'm going to win in the end. And because of his victory, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are going to get saved, including me and you. Okay, one second. Look back at verse 29 really quick. And all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship, and all those who go down to dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Who, who, who is that referring to? Even who cannot keep his soul alive. Every human being that has ever lived can't keep his own soul alive, except for one. The Lord Jesus is the only man who's ever lived who could have kept himself alive if he really wanted to, but he said, no. I love my people so much. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to suffer for them. So the next time you feel like you're drowning in the pain, remember that he's taken the real pain for us. And though you may feel forsaken, you're not forsaken. The cross and the resurrection are the guarantee no matter what you're going through if you're in Christ, Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.